Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. Hello and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Fawcett, and with me today is Staff Sergeant Dan Morton. In his army career, he's been a vehicle engineer, he's been a physical training instructor and also a medic on operational tours. But Dan is also a motorsport enthusiast who runs a YouTube channel called Beyond the Pedal. And since 2021, he's worked on the Army Sports Racing's PR team. He's going to be talking to us, hopefully, about his career highs, his lows, and also how to forge a career out of your passion. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think, Dan, let's just start off with what was life for you before you joined the Army? Yeah, so life growing up, come from Leicester, you know, crime school, didn't go to college or university, did my GCSEs and decided, you know, the Army is, is where I'm going to go. I think fifth or fourth generation forces within my line of family. So it's that natural progression. So it just made sense to fall into it. It felt natural. It, it was just almost like a, not a calling, if you will, but, you know, when you're 15, 16, it was that time of, you know, Herrick, it was the, the family, the pride, pride to be, you know, part of a family that's, you know, from a military background. And that's all I can say. It just felt right. I was a pot wash and a waiter, you know, at 16, the classic first time job that we all have. So you came from a whole environment where being was normalized. It's interesting because I, did my army service many many years ago and i was the first from my family and the only one and surprised myself and everybody else with the choice so i found it culturally just so different from what i was expecting and when you joined what did that first piece feel like going into basic training i don't think anything was outside of what i'd already expected so like you say you know dad was navy and then fireman Granddad was at a PTI in the Royal Navy. My other granddad was in the Remy. And then my great grandpa was at an RAF, you know, Lancaster bomber rear gunner. So, you know, I always has had that sort of like discipline and sort of lifestyle, the, the training that me and my dad did before we went into the army. There was nothing that I was like, oh, this is a shock. So yeah, there was, there was no that you know, shock of capture when I first joined up. It was, I knew what I was going to be expecting. It's going to be early mornings, you know, late nights, getting showered out. You know, having to tidy your clothes up, nothing was ever going to be right. So, you know, all that was already like, you know, like I say, four generations worth of going, this is probably what's going to happen. And it did. So it wasn't really a surprise, but those who didn't have that background, you could tell there was that bit of shock of capture. And a lot of guys do leave because they're just not used to it. So I think really I'm off the sort of like family line and the preparation that was given us before I joined to kind of thank for that really. And do you have any particular memories of those early instructors and how they treated you all so they were in all fairness you know all the instructors that we had were they were really good because we were you know 17 you know a lot of us either 16 or 17 at the army foundation college so you know we were under you know under 18 so there was i think it was a little bit different but there was still that's good i think one of the most profound memories i think i had was this bombardier it's royal artillery corporal equivalent and i remember he was uh he came into the room inspection and remember he got this like this pay stick out and basically went to the top of my locker and just 
pushed his stick to the back of it and just pulled everything out all over my bed. And we're just like, oh, dust at the back there. Reshow. And you're just like, you know, your bed's a mess. Even though there's like stuff all over it, your bed's a mess. We're like, well, yeah, of course, but you've just, you can't say, you know, stand there to attention. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, corporal. No, corporal. Yes, bombardier. No, bombardier. But it's those moments that, you know, when the instructor's gone, you know, it's a game and we'll go on to that later on, you know, how you can play the game of the arm, if you will. But it's when you, the constructor leaves and you're all just like, you just laugh together about it all because you know, it's part of it all. You know, you all get, you know, mucking together, you know, tidy all your stuff up, redo it all, ready for the next inspection and the cycle goes on. So, you know, you're all in it together and that's the beauty of the military, especially in basic training where you're all coming together because you're all in the same boat, you're all suffering together. And that really brings that sort of that brotherhood, that camaraderie together with the army. And people who are outside the military, maybe even thinking about a career in it at this point, would listen to you there and go, but why? Why do they just tip all your clothes all over the floor? Because they would understand why you go and you get fit and you do assault courses and you learn how to use weapons, but why do they throw your clothes on the floor? So really good question. Why do it? So I think there's a few points to that is, first of all, there's a really great saying that we have in the military is no, and you probably would have heard it maybe in businesses, no plan survives first contact. So in your mind, you've laid everything out right. You've done everything that you're supposed to do. Then that variable of the unknown comes in, bam, and it changes everything. So, you know, someone comes in and just trashes all your stuff. Well, now what are you going to do? How do you react to that inconvenience? Where does your mind then go when someone's taken what you just have spent hours and hours and hours on and just trashed it all and then walked out, thought you've got to do it all again? Like, how do you build that mindset of going, okay, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Isn't it game? Am I now going down a spiral of going, I can't do this. I don't want to be here. Or, right, this is a challenge. I now need to go back and go, right, what do I go wrong? Let's do it. Lads, let's, let's come together. Lads, let's come together. Why are we doing this? What, what's going on? Okay, we need to do this. We need to do this. Because then we adapt to the new, the new situation. So that's what it's about. That's the why. You know, it's not about messing you around or just trashing yourself for the sake of trashing. It's how do you deal with that? You know, it's like business. You know, you could have the best business strategy, the best marketing, and then suddenly come along and just completely destroys it. A lot of people give up and then probably go, actually, let's regroup, rebuild, and move forward. And that's really what it's all about. It almost brings back, for me, flashbacks of early Sanhas training that I thought I'd forgotten about, but sounds so familiar. So after you completed basic training, you were then in, you went into the Remi, yeah? And so I think you probably better explain what is the Remi? Yeah, so the Remi is the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. These are the guys that are, you know, fixing the vehicles. So you've got loads of different branches, but mainly everyone knows is vehicle mechanics. You've also got, within the Remi, you've got your Air Corps trades. So fixing, you know, aviation technicians, you've got your recovery mechanics. But for me, I was a vehicle mechanic. So, which was then split into BMEC. And AMEC at the time. So AMEC was truck vehicles. BMEC was wheel vehicles. Me, I'm 17. I'm 18. I love cars. I love you know, Land Rovers. I, I still love Land Rovers now. It's what I want to do. I want to go fix cars. I want to fix Land Rovers. I want to fix trucks. That's what I wanted to do. And so you go into a place called Simi Boarding down in, oh goodness, now we're asking. Yeah, down in Boarding where you do almost nine months. Is it six to nine months? Of training where you basically go from zero to knowing absolutely nothing and you're on five days a week, no breaks, doing all your driving licenses, learning all about engines, vehicles, 
you know, exhaust system, body work, you know, wheels, just how the mechanics of a vehicle works. And then you go on to actually do your driving licenses because if you, you need to fix it, you need to test it. You can't test it if you haven't got a license to test that vehicle, which is the get around. And then from there, you then release into the world and you go, right, or class 3 VM, go fix the Humvee's vehicles. Did you and your other new entrants at that point in time, did you all have to know something about engineering and vehicles beforehand, or you just were trained from scratch to fix anything with a wheel on it? So because I was going into a technical trade within the Army Foundation College, so we were there for a year. So in that time, as we were doing a trade job within a cat badge, we would then go do like different classes to the rest of our troop. So, so within our troop, you had like say infantry, you had trade schools, guys were really going to like ROC and medical, but like as they were doing the technical stuff, so we would go and do like a separate class. So we would end up getting like different calls. So we do like bench work, we'd do level two math, level two English, and we'd do, like, do some other stuff because that's the trade that we were going down. So I suppose really you already had a bit of a little bit of knowledge going into the job of going, well, I can do like a bit of bench work. I can make bits and pieces. I can do a bit of technical drawing. So yeah, you kind of have a, a rough idea of what your very, very basic A-level work kind of thing of before you go into that route. But you didn't need to know engineering before you joined the army overall. Oh, no, 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 no. The army takes you from zero to hero. So you want to go vehicle mechanic. You want to go and be, yeah, actually, yeah, go and do vehicle work. That's where I came from. Vehicle mechanic wise, they will take you from you not knowing anything all the way up to you being able to fix and railroads, trucks, you know, all sorts. And presumably you weren't always able to do the fixing in the luxury of fully equipped garage. Presumably you sometimes had to fix this in the middle of nowhere. So where were you really challenged to get something up and running again? Yeah. So Harry Kate for me was one of the, probably one of the best mo times of, of my army career because it's all about, you know, having purpose. So when you're in that time, it's, it's a case of, if we don't get these vehicles fixed. Guys aren't getting resupplied. They're not getting ammunition. They're not getting the things they need to get done. So for us, it's a very vital part of the job. Without us going like, we're on time pressure here. We need to make sure this is done. Otherwise this stuff's not going to get to the location it needs to be at. And guys are going to suffer because if you haven't got that mindset, let's get this done. It has a huge impact. So, you know, and then you'd go out with the guys and across the locations. When you arrive, you know, you're not getting your head down. You're then back fixing the vehicles again, because you know, these vehicles are getting put through all sorts in you know, desert conditions. They're dusting up all the time. You know, so you're out in the middle of the desert with a toolbox. You know, if you drop a spanner and you leave it for a minute, it's going to be really hot when you pick that thing up and you've got, you know, there isn't like, you know, a manager there to, to wash over you. You maybe have a class one perhaps to help you out. So you've really got to know yourself straight away and, and just be all over it. But, you know, like I say, you're in the desert. We have no lifting equipment. You've got to make do with what you have, getting under everything, losing spanners in sand, trying to fish it out. But it's not like a nice workshop where the floors are all clean and you've got everything you want to hand. Just you and a toolbox and what you know. And whereabouts in the world were you at this point? And this is Afghanistan. And I think that one thing that does will strike any listener is the speed at which you develop or pick up your language within the military because the terminology and the expressions and the definition of locations by operation titles there, they help everyone internally to know what you're talking yeah, about. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know what? We are terrible for that. We're sort of that second language almost, isn't it? That's uh, the inside club of the language that people don't quite know what you're talking about. And it can't always go right fixing vehicles in these locations. So what about things that 
that go wrong. You said people are relying on you to, you know, they need the transport. So what about when things go wrong? What did that feel like? What was the implication or the impact of that on others? When things go wrong. So the army have a very good way. We have a very good ability to say, it can't go wrong. It just will not go wrong. Whatever we need to do to get it done, we get it done. And this is like, I suppose the best way to, we would put it is for those who perhaps work in, I suppose most sport probably the best way of doing it is for that aspect or someone who's an entrepreneur going into the business world is most people work a nine to five, block in at nine, you finish at five. That's it. Then if you, if I work after that one minute past five, I'm getting paid overtime, etc. In the military, the job's not done and it's an operational priority. You know, we don't stop for the clock. You know, we stop until the, you know, it's, we're here till the job's done. You know, everyone, and, and, but that's when everyone comes together to find how do we together fix this problem? The clock is running out. How do we do it? There is no, well, that's me. I'm, I'm done at five o'clock. I'll see you later, guys. It doesn't work like that. It's, this is an operational requirement. Every hand to the problem. We need to get this done. And I think that's the difference when like, where you say, yeah, no, things do go wrong, but that's when we all come together and we make it happen. That's just, there are very limited times where I've ever been in a situation where it's just gone. No. Just un and unworkable. There is always either a workaround, a fix. What it takes is everyone understanding that we're here together to do a job. It's not just a case of there's only one guy. I'll just, I'll just leave it. And I think that's the one of the really fundamental principles that you know people coming into the shop to understand is, you know, there is no wow. Well, I'll just work with no one. So it's we're here till the job's done, and and that's that's how it is. And I'm sure you'll be heard to testify yourself. <laughs> I was listening last week, an old interview with President Barack Obama, and he was being interviewed about what he looked for when he was bringing in people. And obviously, he has some pretty important people do pretty important jobs. And he said, the number one thing is I look for people who can get it done so that whatever problem he might have, whether that's you know a huge international issue or whatever problem you were dealing with in terms of ensuring the fighting soldiers who needed vehicle had it, that ability to just get it done is crucial. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the military really instills that and trains it and makes it part of culture. So after a while, when you've been you're doing that role, when did you get your first promotion? So I actually got promoted to Lance Corporal after I came back from Hurricane. So my first tour to Afghanistan, I got air promoted. So then you start having to take charge of other people, make decisions on their behalf, look after them as well. How did you find that the first time? So at that level, you know, when you go to like private land check, let's say it's the hardest one to gain, the easiest one to lose is what they always say. It's one of those where, what I always had is like with the military, for me, I've never want, been one to like chase the ranks. You know, I'm just kind of that person where, you know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, I'm getting paid. If I'm put in that position that requires me to separate to the challenge or to the challenge of command, then I'll do it. I don't go out to just seek it. Like I want the power. I want this. I want that. So for me, I've always got a mission where, you know, if you ask someone to do something, generally they'll just people with a bit of kindness, you know, just, you know, if you go around screaming and shouting and yelling at people all the time, it just, it's classic British mentality. People get the backup. There's a time and a place for it. And I've always been on the notion that if you go in with a little bit of kindness, treat people nice, you know, reward, excellent work, help where people are struggling. And it always follows principles. Like I've had some really good NCOs and some leaders in my time. And I've also had some really poor ones. And I've tried to go, I want to be 
like that person. But if I can emulate a leader, that would be the, the person I would go to be, or, you know, that because the way they conduct themselves, the way they treat people, the way they get the most out of their guys, because they're not just yelling all the time and just you know, speaking to people. Because, you know, that happens, I think, in, in all walks of life. I think it's just human nature. Some people like to have the power, and other people, not too fussed by it. Lads, can we just please? Cool. Easy. I think the leadership piece is really interesting here. And so you mentioned there where there were some leaders above you who you were inspired by and others who you clearly weren't. What do you think the traits that you took out of both the good and bad examples, as in, I'm going to do some of that and I'm definitely not going to do some of that. What did you take away from those sort of people and situations? I think what it was is put myself in, how was I feeling at the time when that person was speaking to me? And that will replicate. So if I'm speaking to people, there's like I say, there's a time and a place where you need to scream, shout, get things. This is a not a negotiation conversation. There are times and places for it. And those are like those operational moments, those times when you're like on the battlefield, on an exercise where, you know, time is precious, you know, go for it. There's a time and a place for it. If you're like it all the time, it just becomes like, I want to avoid that person. I don't want to work for that person. I'll just do, yeah, fine. You just did. I'll just please them. Yeah, fine. One. What you wanted to become is the leaders that I saw that where I wanted to work for them is because I wanted to show up, you know, they would just ask me to do something. You know, it's just the way that was just like, it would apply. It wasn't forceful. It was just, you know, can you just get this done? We're on a bit of a time schedule, but you know, this needs to be done. Then, you know, if I didn't do it and then I asked them and they asked me a second or third time, and then they went and said, I've told you this, get it done. Well, hang on. Yeah. Of course the tone has to change because I'm not doing as I'm supposed to be doing. So that if you're hard all the time, people don't really pay attention to it. If you then go from nice, 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 then all of a sudden you switch and go, I've asked you this, get it done. People go, oh, okay, if that makes kind of sense. Absolutely. At Sanus, they had an expression, it was an entire ethos, serve to lead. And you focused on service first as part of the way that you led others. And actually, at, at my current business, We Are Futures, we run a leadership development program for some staff every year and talk to them about context or situational leadership. And as you're describing, you, there are ways to bring people on board and consult. But equally, if you're suddenly involved in let's say a car accident, you want somebody to be making some decisions and getting people to safety and not just saying, what are we all going to do? So I think that aspect of leadership I've always believed is, is a, a lifelong skill that you can improve upon. And the whole thing about natural leaders, yeah, there are some who may be a little fast to it than others, but like kicking a football, playing guitar, learning a language, leadership is a skill you can improve upon if you consciously work at it. And so you were a Lance Corporal then and still an engineer. And at some point you trained as a medic. And what caused that change from your perspective? Why? Yeah. So I think what it was is, you know, if we're going to go in the sort of like coming off tour, and this is something that's, you know, it's been proven. It's something that, you know, the army still struggles with sometimes is when you come back away from operations, you end up having almost sometimes like a little bit of loss of identity because you're going back to going, well, actually, well, now we're not doing those things we were doing before. We know I'm now back in my unit in UK. I'm fixing a vehicle that's going to go five miles and not really do anything. You just kind of feel like you lose purpose. So from there, I went and did a phase one training job, uh, doing events training for a recruit, which was again, it was two years, very rewarding. You know, you're giving young guys experiences. It's very suited to my sort of like style of how I'm with 
with other with the soldiers, just having a laugh when you you know having a laugh, having a good time, putting people in challenging environments, watching people grow and learn, and and you're coaching them through that. And then of course it was my time to come to, like back into the room, and I just thought, do I really want to go back into that fold of doing that? And I would just I just didn't, didn't really want to. So I had a few choices. I could have gone into the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. Or I could have gone as a medic. I was a team medic, what we call a team medic in Afghanistan, where I did a few looks and pieces, nothing too wild. And I really enjoyed that. Again, you know, coming from a line of, you know, dad was a fireman, sister's a nurse, that kind of helping, sort of just like to help people. And I just thought, you know what, being a medic would be a good role for me to go into. And it just kind of just fell on, fell in that way. So, yeah. And so when you became a medic, you then went on further operational tours. You able to say where in the world you were? So yeah, well, Iraq was where where was when I ended up going to next is where I was ended up working there and did a few bits and pieces. Right, and in terms of bits and pieces, then you're a medic in an operational environment. You're going to deal with the nasty end of the work of the military. Then, what sort of incidents stick in your mind from your work as a medic in the Middle East? I think in what work casualties dealt with, or best way to go with that would be is. The training that you get, the specialist training that we had worked and it was very good to see that the training that we did had an impact or to get somebody back to their family, you know, and it was initial because for us, you're working on that sort of stop the bleeding, make sure there's an airway, get them out and, you know, trauma, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's easy, but it is once you've kind of got over the Oh, okay. This is what we've got here. Okay. Let's look at the two things. Are they bleeding? Yes. Stop it. Have they got an airway? Can they breathe? No. Well, let's speak to them. I'm sure they can breathe then. Once you've got those two things out of the way, they can get to the specialist care because the specialist at the other end don't have to worry about too much about those things because you've dealt, you kind of covered it so they can work on the other stuff. I think the most important aspect of that is knowing that the training that I had prepared me as best as it could for the real problems. So were you working very much on the ground where the incidents happen down with fighting soldiers or were you hospital based for when they were being evacuated for first stages of care? Yeah. So what you, I suppose the best way we would just say it is with the line of work that we were doing, we were, you know, what you would call a tactical bound behind. So where we would be, would be what we call like an aid post. So they would bring whatever they had to us. So they'd like do a little bit of patchwork or whatever they could do on the ground with their guys at the basic level, then bring them to us. And we would make sure that it was done at a much higher level to then go on to the next set stage of care for it to be, you know, all you know, pretty much recovered. And, you know, we had feedback of saying, you know, we had a few instances where, you know, we got the feedback saying that the guy that, you know, that was really, really injured, you know, survived because of what we were able to do and um, with the very limited resources in the locations that weren't what you would call you know, NHS clinical, you're working in environments that are, again, like the mechanics or so it's, you know, you don't have the luxury of being in a nice, clean clinical suite. You know, you could be operating in a bombed out building, you know, in an old shot of petrol station in a, you've just got to make do with what you have to create an aid post to get people in, get them the, the treatment they need and then move them on. And you're dealing then with young men, mostly men, but women as well, who are scared at this time if they're conscious and maybe with some colleagues with them if, if someone's gone back with them what was 
hardest at this sort of role? Was it the emotional side? Was it actually just the, the medical side of getting the job right? What were the challenges for you in the role? So I think with the mental side, it's one of those, again, in our line of work, you don't have time to let your emotions get in the way of stuff. If you start thinking about your emotions and how you're feeling about it, that's not going to fix that part of the personal problem. What you need to do is get over the fact that, okay, yeah, what you're seeing isn't great. What about the guy that's going through it? You know, what about that guy that's, you know, hang on a minute, lost some leg, get over yourself. And that's the thing again, is that the training we had beforehand, it's one of those where like, not tunnel vision, but I suppose it's, you haven't got time to think about how you're feeling about it, where it's right. What do I need to get done to get this person the treatment they need to save that person's life? You know, if you start going down this rabbit hole of you know, worrying about how you're feeling or how am I going to react, don't worry, you'll know how you're going to react when it happens. And nine times out of 10, the line of work I've seen, you know, done people that I've worked with, you know, I know it's a bit old fashioned, but you genuinely, you just get on with it. You just, we have this ability in the army to just turn it on when we need to. When it comes to that moment, we just turn it on when we have to. And that is something that just comes with time experience, knowing that training works, knowing that you've got your oppos around you, you know, your friends, your colleagues, and also knowing that what you are doing, you need to make sure you've got it. It's when you've drilled it, drilled it, and drilled it, and drilled it. And next thing you know, it's just bump, 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 done. Next person. Have you ever felt fear? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. I think to say that you don't feel fear, you know, is, so there's a very fine line between fear and excitement. You know, they're almost the same things and it depends how you want to look at it. Depends how you react. You know, fear and excitement, they run a, a very steady parallel with the adrenaline, how you're feeling, the shaking, the first, for example, is jumping out of a plane. So I've jumped out of a plane a couple of times, but being for those that, you know, know what a sky van is, it's this ricky little plane where you do military parachuting in. It takes you up and the back door drops down and you're stood there. You're just looking, you know, for those experienced parachuters that will see this will go, we'll understand the very first time they may have jumped, but obviously countless the very first time you're about to jump out and you're just going to step into nothing. You're stepping into nothing, but your plane's going up, your heartbeat's racing. It's excitement. It's fear. It's okay. What am I, you know, okay, I've got everything. I've done the drills. I've done the drills. I've done the drills. Then you stand up and then that door just, you know, opens up and you're just looking like, well, this is it. Then all of a sudden, you know, you jump out and it's just, and it all of a sudden it all kind of just goes away and you fall into it and you go back into it. But it is that initial, I know, I think Will Smith did a, a bit of a talk on that a while ago, but it's the same, it is exactly the perfect analogy. So many things in life are just like that, both fear and excitement at the same time. And then when it happens, you just turn it on and then it, you just roll with it. Yeah. I think the parachuting is an interesting one because I did a fair bit of that when I was younger and the fear that I had as the plane was just getting higher and higher, knowing what I was about to do, never, ever went away. But equally, at the same time, it was also more scary than I'd ever been in an operational environment. And the medical side that you mentioned what it feels like then, I, I remember very much, it was on a second day of an operational tour and a helicopter was hit out of the sky about 50 feet maybe 100 feet above the ground near us came down and casualties inside it and i was one of the first to it and there was this chap in it who's basically his stomach had been opened up and there was a lot of his insides on his outside and and we were sort of patched him up as quick as possible got him out there then we had other things to deal with then the next day other things to deal with 
I didn't really think about that again for about six or seven months. And that's when I'd come back from tour, I had a chance to go, that was just quite intense for a very short period of time. And it, my main fear was of not screwing up as I didn't want to let people around me down. I didn't want to let my soldiers down. I didn't want to let this guy down in particular. And I think a lot of that is a, a feeling the army instills in you in that main thing is I don't want to screw up for the people. It's pretty much because that's sort of the worst thing you can do. So, you, you know, yeah, so you all know that, you know, we, there is just this thing that, like, say, the incident happened and you've just gone, let's turn it on, let's go, let's, let's get it done. And like I say, as you said that, you didn't think about it, you just got it done because of the training, the preparation, all of it. You didn't go and go, oh, what do I do here? It's just, right, we're on now. This is not a game. People are relying on us and next thing you know, you've done what you need to do for him, that individual to get the shipment they need. So bringing us back sort of more to, as we continue to unwrap your career to, to current time, you're now heavily involved in motorsports. So somebody might think, hang on, this is a soldier who's fixed vehicles around the world, who's been a medic, and now he's doing public relations, YouTube, and motorsports. Surely he's left the army. How does that work? It feels like it sometimes. It does feel like it sometimes. I think I've always been a fan of motorsport. Yeah, I've always been a fan. How it all came about was, I suppose, during the lockdown era. You know, many of us, you know, we're all sat and watching YouTube and you finish work. Because at the time during the so COVID, you know, we were still working, you know, as medics, you know, we were still doing, you know, what was required of us to do. You know, I say for a lot of the army, it didn't start. You know, we were still working, we still did missing pieces. But also, you know, I did find myself watching a lot of YouTube and I just found myself being like, oh, why am I not doing this? Look at all these guys, these crazy cars doing YouTube and stuff. My partner, she just went, well, do something about it then. You do it. And I was like, fine, I will. So... From there, I started the YouTube channel Beyond the Pedal, and a buddy of mine who races in the motorcycles, he reached out to me and said, yeah, the Army's got the, the British Army Motorsports Association, there's eight disciplines, they do Army sports car racing, and I was like, what? And so from there, I reached out to the team and showed them what I was producing, and they were like, okay, yeah, come down. I made a video for them, and ever since last year, I've been part of the team, doing all the PR work, you know, really building relations with the guys, having a such a laugh, but also showcasing that the skills that we learn coming together, you know, time pressures, getting things out, getting cars ready, is all transferable, such a relatable level. And so for in order to have the successes that we've been having, we have to work together as a team to get it out. And that's what we're trying to, that's what I really wanted to showcase with doing the Army Sports Career in Public Relations is to show that you know, the highs and the lows forever within the team. There are more highs, absolutely. You know, we're going racing at the end of the day, of course, but you know, we're trying to, you know, publicize that sustainability piece across all eight disciplines. You know, how we get people involved in motorsports. Well, it's not for everyone. You know, how we also get you know, women involved in motorsports and how they can, you know, we've got a young driver at the minute, Yasmin. Uh, she's a phenomenal driver, uh, you know, real inspiration both to like, you know, all of us in the team and to you know, female drivers that want to, you know, that want to compete. But, and it's those sort of things that we're really, really focusing on was like, you know, how you can push yourself, how the team can get around you and, and move forward. How goes, hey, we, the race is starting in half an hour, the car's still in bits. We need to get this thing back together quickly or else we're not going to be able to race and get points and then, you know, beat the army, at, beat the RAF and the Navy, which is the key point, really. Motorsports is, is very relatable to, and it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, working hours, you know, we're not done to the car's ready, you know, which is why you see a, 
we had an opportunity to go and speak to the Haas team. I uh, got to go into the Haas garage at the British GP. We were chatting to a lot of the mechanics and they were saying like a lot of the guys within teams are ex-forces because they get the pace of life for an F1 team. You know, they're on the road all the time. They're always away. The hours are ridiculous. Um, and a lot of perhaps the civilian sector within they just aren't used to that way of life. Whereas a lot of the ex-forces are like, oh, we're away again. Yeah, no problems. Oh, we got away again. Yeah, no problems. Fine. There's just zero complaints. Are you racing yourself? I don't race at the moment. Uh, I think that's, that's a future, a future plan. I don't race at the moment. I'm just building up the new, just trying to get our name, our branding, our sport really into the spotlight. Uh, so that, you know, people come on and it, and it is growing rapidly. And how did the last season go? Did you beat the Navy and the RF in the key races? Well, I mean, stats don't lie. Uh, you know, stuff like Doug Ingalls, he was the AFRC champion, RLC driver. He won last year's one. So we'll take that as a bit of a W for us. The guys are coming for saying it, but yeah, we're definitely winning the way at the moment. Yes. And I saw your YouTube piece from the Formula One paddock. I think it was at the British Grand Prix last year. Apart from meeting and going inside the garage with the Haas team, what are the army getting out of you all being there and doing this? Yeah, great. That's a really question. Actually, people are like, hang on, why are people going on this? Well, it's motorsport, it's the F1. And for us, you know, F1 is, it's all glamour, it's all this, it's all that. But, you know, it's also like, how do people brought out the question of like, want to join the army and go, hang on, I can race cars in the eye. I can be part of a motorsport team as well, because, you know, most, as you, as you, you've probably seen with a lot of motorsports, people think there's a lot of money, but I know there's money. Of course, there's a lot of money involved in it. But what the army does is, which is again, classic is anyone can come along in, in, with, and that's across all the sports and the army will take you and take you from knowing absolutely nothing about that sport to somebody coming, having like pro level training. Take Cat Matthews as, as a prime example. Current, I'm one of the top profits in the Ironman series for triathlon. And she, I think she came in with no, very little experience of, you know, of Ironman, competed a few times and all of a sudden, you know, found a passion for it. And the other like, you've got a real talent here. And the other identified that talent straight away and was like, you know what? You've got still got your full-time job, but we're also going to get you to a real high level of training and represent the army. It's the same for us. You know, we've got, we're now in three different, you know, racing series because of the talent we have within the team. We're considered one of the most professional teams in, within the paddock, especially within the 750 motor club. What's really good is the, sometimes the directors, we have a bit of a kerfuffle, if you will, on the track. The directors are more than happy to come down to us and, you know, give us a one way conversation because they know we'll react to it without any kickback or fuss. And then we, and then we progress on and, you know, and just get better with that. You know, we're in three different racing, you know, within the army sports car racing, three different discipline uh, series. And again, it's promoting the army, it's promoting motorsports, it's promoting that team bonding. It's very fun. Oh, I didn't realize you could do that in the army. Oh, you can race it or you can go into that. And I've always wanted to race this and, or do that. And the army gives you that opportunity, not just in, like say within British army motorsports, but in, well, like if you could think of a sport, pretty much the army has a way for you to do it. And that just goes into a, you know, a bit of a follow-on really is, you know, why people seeing people building sports. The reality is it's part of the army sort of like give back. And as, as I'm sure you well know, you know, the army's asking you to go, you know, tomorrow, hey, Dan, guess what? You're off for six months. Say goodbye to your family. Say goodbye to this person. You're on PDT and you're going out the door. And that's the reality. So, but in return, the army goes, we've got all these sports event training you can go and do as well. So there's a huge amount of give and take. So the army can go, we, we want you to do this. But in return, you're also going to get all of this. 
So, you know, there are highs and lows with, with both of that. And you can therefore take a telling off on the racetrack from the race directors in a way that perhaps Tito Wolf and the Red Bull team can't when we see on Drive to Survive. I mean, to be honest with you, like, they can be very, very direct, but they can just literally just give us that one-way conversation. Guys, it was one of the ones we had, it was last year, and the guy just came down and said, you guys are the ministry, we expect a higher standard from you. And it's like, you know what, he's absolutely right. We should be doing things a bit better. And it was a bit of like on track, you know, kerfuffling, if you will. But at the end of the day, he's absolutely right in what he says. We should be more pressured in certain aspects. I mean, we go away, we talk about what happened. Why did this happen? Okay, I did this, I did that. Okay, don't do that. Don't make sure, let's make sure we don't do this. Okay, why did you do this? Blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And we have that sit down, look back. How do we get better? Next race came on. The guy comes down and goes, that's what I want to see. And that's the difference. You mentioned earlier about playing the game of the army. Said we might come back to that. What did you mean by that? So playing the army game is one big game. There's a few things I would always say to people, you know, first impressions, polish your boots, right place, right time, right kit. You know, it's a very simple philosophy. Be in the right place at the right time in the right kit and you'll be fine. Someone asks you to do something, go into it. Easy that. Yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full. Absolutely no problems at all. You know, with the army, it can be very, very easy and it can also be very, very difficult. But if you just follow three simple steps, I think it's the same in most things in life. Right place, right time, right kit. You can't go wrong. And what do you think you'd have done if you hadn't gone into the army? So I probably would have fallen into something either like fire service or the police, you know, or I'd have become a paramedic maybe. I'd have probably fallen into something along those, that sort of line more than likely, or I'd have maybe taken over a business that he also had as well, potentially. But honestly, at the time, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And with everything you've learned, everything you've experienced during your life so far, and there's still a lot to go, so you have an 11-year-old child, so you've got a whole lot of parenting, 11-month child, so you've got a lot of parenting to do. And if you go back and speak to your 16, 70-year-old younger self, what advice might you give to them about things to do or things not to do? It's a very interesting question because I've thought about this sort of question quite a lot about what would you do and go back and would you give yourself any advice? I think the reality is it won't because I wouldn't give any advice that would change the course of where I am today because, you know, it's led me to the position I'm in. So everything I've gone through has got me to this point. I think if you try and stop the mistakes of your past and stuff, you know, I think you have to go through that. You have to go through those mistakes because you, what you end up, the product you end up getting from, as long as you can learn from those mistakes, as long as you can go, or perhaps, no, you know what? There is one piece of advice I would give my younger self is take accountability for everything straight away. When you're 16, 17 years, it's everybody else's fault but your own. If there's one thing I would say to my self is take accountability for absolutely everything. Perhaps shout at you. Why? It's not something they've done. It's something that you've done. You know, again, you have to go through those mistakes to realize that. But one piece of advice I would give anybody going into this job or going into any walk of life is accountability. Take accountability for everything that happens both for you and to you. Celebrate the wins that you've worked hard for, but also learn for why things have gone wrong and where you went wrong. Not anybody else, not somebody else did. 
what you did that was wrong. If you can do that from a young age in any world of life, I think you'll have a lot more success. Absolutely. Own your mistakes and don't sit there and blaming everybody else. I think that's one of the things that I would say to, because I know, I think we've all been guilty of when we're younger. And I, you know, I certainly was, you know, when I was younger, being like, oh, but it wasn't this, it was our, my alarm didn't go off or I was late because of this, or I was late because of that. Set your alarm, wake up on time, set more alarms, take accountability for yourself. That's the advice I would give the 16-year-old Dan Morton at, at the time. Dan, it's been really interesting to unwrap your career, the variety it's given you, and also the thought you've had about what it's done for you as a person, how you've progressed, and what it feels like, actually, to have a long, good career in the Army. So thank you so much for coming on the show and for talking to us about that. I think anybody who wants to get a bit of insight of what it actually feel like will have got it from you. One thing we like to ask guests as well is because we want to keep this baton of careers, experience, and advice moving along. If I was to ask you perhaps one other person who you think we should get on, whose own experience, whose own career journey or story would be really interesting and useful to others, who might that be? Actually, outside of the military, there's a guy called David Lynch, who I do some work with. He um, runs the Conqueror, he's an entrepreneur, and he has, he came from Northeast, came from, you know, a uh, difficult background, you know, didn't go to university, you know, didn't come from much money, you know, and he built a company, uh, Lynch Health, I believe it was, you know, some really great business decisions and has become an entrepreneur and his story is really, really fascinating. He's a lovely bloke. We got on really well and I've been doing some work with him as well, but his background is very interesting of, of going from that, coming from, genuinely coming from, you know, working class family in the Northeast. You know, none of the, you know, advantages that, you know, many people perhaps maybe get and to turn himself into quite a successful businessman, you know, with going stuff going on. He's definitely worth someone to chat to, yeah, David Lynch. And if you, and I would say, if there's anybody else I would say for you to interview, it's probably my boss that I've currently got, a guy called uh, Pete Armstrong. He is a very interesting guy who is a font of military knowledge you know, a very, very successful career going from a gunner to a, a you know, major lieutenant colonel, a very inspiring, one of the most inspiring boss I've had. And I learn a lot from him every day. I've only been in this current role eight months and the conversations we have, you know, we talk geopolitics, we talk all sorts, um, how the army works, the upper echelons, you know, at brigade and group levels, you know, very, very interesting man to talk to. Great. Two fascinating people. I think Overall, what I've taken away from this, and I agree with it so much, is it's the mantra of just get it done. It's something that the military teaches you. It's something that sets you up. And it's also something that employers outside the military should perhaps consider when they're looking for people who they want to get things done. So I think that's a good way to leave us. Dan, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been great fun. No, no, thanks. Well, just one more thing before I do leave you there. I mean, the last thing would be is if you are going to join the army, one thing is volunteer for everything. Don't know where it's going to take you. Volunteer for if there's an opportunity, take it. Great. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. Thanks a lot. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business, or organization to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.